are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Well, tonight we begin our series on Christ and the cradle. Um, You know, eventually we're going to get to Christ and the cross, and then beyond that, Christ and his conquest as he rose from the grave on the third day. But here's what we have to remember, is without a cradle, there could have never been a cross. If it had not been for Christmas, we could not celebrate Easter. And so we begin tonight with Christ and his cradle. And tonight I want to ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 2. The Gospel of Luke, chapter number 2, as you're turning there, we're going to begin tonight by thinking about when we focus on this matter of Christ and his cradle, we're going to look at the period of it. In other words, the time frame. What was the setting when Christ came from heaven, was born of a virgin, and came into the world to be our Savior? If you found your place in Luke chapter number 2, if you're in the tents, if you're outside tonight and you're physically able, I ask you to stand to your feet as we read our scripture text. If you're in your car, then I understand it'd be very difficult unless you are very vertically challenged to be able to stand up in your car, and so you just remain seated. Tonight we'll begin in Luke chapter number 2, verse number 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city, And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather tonight, we come for the purpose that was mentioned earlier, that we might adore you, that we might turn our eyes upon you and allow the things of this world to grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. May we be encouraged May we be challenged, may we be helped by the time we spend in your house this evening. We'll thank you and praise you for what you do, for we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Tonight as we look at this very familiar passage of scripture that gives to us Luke's account of the Christmas story, I'm struck by something that caught my attention. As I've read this story, I've read it probably hundreds of times as you have, 
I grew up in a small country church, and uh, every year we always had a Christmas pageant. Then later on, God enabled me to be able to be an associate pastor in a church, and we always had a Christmas pageant. Later on, I pastored a church for 14 years, a small country church, and every year we had a Christmas pageant. There's something about the small church Christmas pageant that is unmatched by anything in the world. I love to see the young people walk down the aisle, the boys dressed in their mother's bathrobe, a Burger King crown painted gold upon their head, you know, their mother's perfume bottles as frankincense and myrrh, uh, and uh, the shepherds uh, fighting one another instead of keeping watch over their flock, Mary and Joseph who adamantly despise each other, but they're the only two people in the youth group the same age. And so they sat there across uh, from that one another looking over that manger with a plastic baby doll in it. There's just something about that Christmas pageant. And we have read this story. We have seen it played out before our eyes. We've heard it. But I fear this. I fear that we become so familiar with it that we miss what it says. We read it, but we don't really hear the message of it. And I'm interested tonight in a phrase that's found in the opening verse of our scripture reading. It really sets before us the scene of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in chapter 2 and verse number 1, And it came to pass in those days. That's the phrase I'm interested in tonight is in those days. You know, I, I wonder what it was like when Jesus came. Well, I think as we examine our scripture reading for tonight with the thought in mind of what was it like in those days, I think we can understand and we can get a glimpse of what it must have been like. I think first of all, I, I think we could all agree that most certainly for Joseph, for Mary, for others living in that era, these must have been days of adversity. The days in which the events of the first Christmas occurred were days of adversity for those who would do right and follow God. I mean, they faced adversity on multiple fronts. First of all, there was adversity from an unregenerate populace. Israel was ruled by Rome. They were under the occupation of foreigners. With control of Rome came an influx of foreigners as well as a steady weakening of the true sincere faith in God. Many people in that day were like people of our day. They were religious, but they were not right. And you know, an unregenerate populace has no perception or patience with dogmatic Christianity. And we live in an area, uh, we live in an era of time much like it was in the Bible days. You see, we are not the majority as Christians, rather we are the minority. Most people do not agree with what we believe in. Most people do not hold to the same standards and the ideas and the convictions that we possess. And so we face adversity from many directions. Not only were these days of adversity because of an unregenerate populace, but these were days of adversity as they suffered, yes, I'm going to say it, from unscrupulous politicians. Now, can you imagine such a thing? Herod and those who ruled for Rome were interested only in securing their own positions and increasing their own personal wealth. Does that not sound familiar to the day and age in which we live? For politicians in this day, 
the drug of power, the opportunity for wealth and prestige, and the advancement of self-interest combine to lead to unimagined excesses. Uh, could I just say that that is the same scenario in which we find ourselves today? Uh, why is it that every place is open that is a place of vice and a place of iniquity and a place of wickedness and sin, and yet the places of righteousness are closed up? Uh, there's only one reason. It doesn't make sense unless you think that somehow uh, corona only spreads in a religious atmosphere. And if that be true, then we're all in trouble. But that's not true. It can't be true. It's, it's absolutely impossible. And so we face adversity. Not only were they facing adversity from an unregenerate populace, not only did they face adversity because of unscrupulous politicians, but they actually, in Rome, if you read any of the history, you'll find that they faced adversity because they lived really in a society of nearly unrestrained perversion. The Roman Empire became saturated with individuals who were completely amoral. That is, they had no moral compass whatsoever. There was nothing that was absolutely right and there was nothing that was absolutely wrong. Everything was just relevant. It was based on how you feel and how you saw it and what appealed to you. And can I say, we live in much a similar situation in the day and age in which we find ourselves. You think about it. I mean, really, unrestrained perversion, uh, things that are wrong being called right and things that are right being deemed wrong. Uh, we pervert everything in our society. Uh, they pervert the sanctity of life. And they call that life in the mother's womb a mere fetus, a lump of tissue. We pervert the sanctity of marriage and uh, say that it should not be restrained for uh, a union between one man and one woman because we're not even sure that just man and woman are the only genders that exist. I mean, there are a multitude of genders and you just figure out what works for you. Uh, we pervert morality and we call it hate. You know, we don't really hate people. We do hate sin and we do hate the devil. But we love people and we love righteousness and we love God and we want what is right. And so as a consequence, we live in an atmosphere of adversity, just like it was in the days of Christ's birth. Not only were these days of adversity, but those days were days of apostasy. If we were to read verse 3 and verse number 4, we read of how Joseph and Mary went to be uh, taxed and they went to Bethlehem because of their lineage. And as we read of their lineage, they were of the house of David, we're reminded of the spiritual state of Israel. I mean, from the glorious days of David to the idolatry of Solomon, and then to a divided kingdom of whom both went into captivity for their sins against God, truly it could be said of Israel, how are the mighty fallen? Their religious state in Israel could be represented by their three most powerful religious groups of that era. First of all, there were the Pharisees. As we read through the New Testament, the life of Christ, we find Jesus often interacting with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees uh, were very devout. They were focused on rules and regulations. Uh, they were perhaps doctrinally correct, 
but they were not right in their spirit. I guess if we could categorize the Pharisees and describe them, we would use two words and we would describe them with this phrase, no love. They were a people who were all about justice without mercy. They were about doing it exactly by the jot and the tittle of the law and there was no room for variance. Well, not only were there the Pharisees in that day, but their counterpart, the more liberal theologians of Jesus' day, were this group called the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were an interesting group in that they were doctrinally incorrect. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in angels. I guess if we were to sum up the belief system of the Sadducees, we would say it this way. While the Pharisees are characterized by having no love, the Sadducees are characterized by having no hope. I mean, you know, there is no afterlife. It's uh, you just live and then you die and then it's all over. Well, in contradiction to these two groups, the group of no love and the group of no hope, there was set over against them another group, uh, really a powerful religious group. They were called the Herodians. Now the Herodians were those that had completely abandoned theological uh, premises as their hope, and they had placed their hope in the political arena, hence the name Herodian. They were uh, advocates of following Herod and making peace with Rome. In fact, they had just given up on their religion practically at all. It was only a formality for them. So now we have the Pharisees, the group of no love. We have the Sadducees, the group of no hope. And we have the Herodians, the group of no faith. And that was the sum of Israel's position. And can I say to you, if we were to look around us at religious society today in America, we would say that's the sum of religion in America. There are those with no love. You either do it my way exactly or you must be the enemy. There are those with no hope. Uh, they have no assurance of a life to come. And they're just going through exercises with their fingers crossed, hoping for the best in the end. And then there are the most certainly those with no faith. They've given up on church altogether and they place their hope in a political party or political reform for the answer. And so Joseph and Mary are making their journey. They're living in the midst of days of adversity. They're living in the midst of days of apostasy. And then could I say to you that they are living in the midst of days of anxiety. As Joseph makes this journey from his hometown all the way to Bethlehem, and as he begins to set out on this enterprise, have you ever thought what must have gone through his mind as he starts out on this great trek with a wife who is great with child. I mean, it was not like in our day and age, I, my wife and I, we were honored to be the parents of four children. In every situation, I was able to run outside in a hurry, jump in the car, drive to the hospital, and uh, drop my wife off, and they took care of everything else. It was relatively easy for me. I'll never forget our third, uh, our third son, our fourth child, as he was going to be born. He was born on uh, Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And uh, my wife was there at the table, and she was working on preparing Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, she was most certainly great with child, and 
as she was sitting there, I'll never forget, she was preparing deviled eggs. Now, I don't know why a Baptist has deviled eggs in their house, but we did. And she was preparing deviled eggs and uh, making sure everything was ready for Thanksgiving dinner on the morrow. And uh, a contraction would hit her. And she would drop everything and grab the side of the table and huff and puff. And, and I'd say, let's go, let's go. She'd say, oh, no, it's okay. I'll be fine. I've got to get this finished so you have Thanksgiving dinner tomorrow. And uh, I finally told her, I said, well, dear, I'm promising you, if this baby comes in the van, I'm leaving the van. It's going to be you and the baby. I'm having nothing to do with it. I am not a doctor. I don't know. We got to the hospital, and when we got out, I let her out of the van and walked her to the door. The nurse said, honey, we don't have time for paperwork. We're taking you straight to the delivery room. And, uh, you know, all's well that ends well, I guess. But I can imagine the anxiety in the heart of Joseph as he sets out on this journey towards Bethlehem. I mean, his mind must have been swirling with questions of wondering how it's going to be. First of all, he must have had anxiety concerning the fact of facing public scorn. I mean, there were others who were traveling with them who knew the story. I mean, after all, Joseph and Mary are not even legally married yet. And yet Mary is now about to give birth to her first child. Surely there must have been something inappropriate that has happened. One of two things, either Joseph is guilty of sin with Mary and they're trying to pretend like it didn't happen and, and hoping people will accept and understand. Or Mary has been unfaithful and Joseph in a gracious way is willing to overlook her sin. Now of course you and I looking back in retrospect we understand and we know that Mary was a virgin. That which was in her was conceived of the Holy Ghost. This was a miracle of God. But all of those who were in the journey traveling with them, can you imagine the whispers that must have been made can you imagine the conversations that must have swirled about them? Joseph must have certainly faced some anxiety concerning public scorn. I'm sure that Joseph faced some anxiety concerning personal safety. I mean, after all, he was not in a car. He was not armed with a 357. He did not have the security of a mace or pepper spray that you and I would carry. Joseph is on uh, perhaps traveling on foot most likely leading a small donkey with Mary riding upon his back. And uh, he has to be concerned about her safety. Uh, the roads are going to be packed with travelers. All the Jewish world is coming to be taxed. Everyone's going to their own city. By the time they arrive in Bethlehem, there is no room for them to be found. It's a crowded place. It would be easy for someone in their haste to jostle Mary and knock her off of that donkey. And then she would suffer uh, from that uh, tragic accident. Joseph most certainly must have been concerned for her personal safety. He must have been concerned about public scorn. And he must have been concerned about the matters of practical sufficiency. Can you think about the expenses that Joseph is facing there are taxes to be paid. There is lodging to be secured. There is food that is going to have to be purchased. There is medical care that will be needed. How long will they have to stay? Will he be able to find work? Will he be able to take care of her? I mean, after all, there'll be some recovery time and the journey back home is going to entail not just Mary, but a small baby as well. 
I'm sure Joseph's mind must have been working overload uh, with anxiety as he looked around and tried to figure things out. Could I just say that reminds me of the day and age in which we live again as well? These are days of anxiety. I mean, uh, today, many people are worried and fretful. Uh, first of all, some are concerned about public scorn for their faith or their convictions. Many are concerned in the day and age in which we live uh, regarding personal safety. And everywhere you go, people are concerned. Uh, they're masked up and gloved up. And saw a lady the other day, it looked like she had a space suit on. I didn't know if she was coming or going or making plans, uh, but she wanted to be very secure. You know why? She's very concerned for her personal safety. And that's the way people are. I mean, we live in a society that is wrapped up, uh, that has consumed themselves with somehow or another the goal that they must arrive safely at death. You know, does that even make sense? I went to the doctor the other day for a physical and the doctor was talking to me, asking me if I was concerned. And I said this, I said, well, ma'am, I said, you do understand that nobody gets out alive, don't you? Amen. Not one person. Unless the rapture occurs, we're all going to die. It's just a matter of time. Now, most certainly I'm not trying to hasten the prospect, but I'm just trying to be a realist I'm not going to live my life in fear and apprehension and cower in a corner and uh, be afraid of living because somehow or another something tragic may happen. My life is in God's hands. My times are in his hands. And God is in control. And I will use common sense and trust him. By the way, many today have a concern for practical sufficiency. The question arises, will I have a job next week? Will my business continue? How will I make it? If the shutdown goes on, how are we going to survive? How are things going to play out? You see, just like the days when Jesus came, we are living in times that are very similar. These are days of adversity. These are days of apostasy. These are days of anxiety. But all can I say to you, not only were these days of adversity and apostasy and anxiety, these were days of anticipation. Because though the times were dark, there was hope because Jesus was on his way. And could I just report to you tonight that though these, yes, are days of adversity, yes, we're living in the midst of apostasy, and though certainly these are days of anxiety for many people, I want to tell you I'm living as these are days of anticipation because although the times are dark, there is hope for Jesus is on his way. And when he came, there would be a promise that would be fulfilled. As early as Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15, the promise of a Savior had been given. And over and over throughout the centuries, the prophets have reiterated the fact that there was a Messiah coming. And in just a few short days, this divine eternal promise was going to be fulfilled as Mary brought forth her firstborn son. Not only there was a promise that would be fulfilled, but there was a provision that would be furnished. In Genesis chapter 22 and verse number 8, as Abraham and Isaac are making their way up Mount Moriah, 
Isaac looks at his father and he says, here is the wood and here is the fire for uh, 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 the sacrifice, but where is the lamb? And Abraham made that great prophetic statement, probably saying more than he even understood himself. He said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. And when Mary brought forth her firstborn son, it was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And not only a promise would be fulfilled with the birth of Christ, not only a provision would be furnished, but a problem would be fixed. You see, man, ever since the dawn of creation and the fall in the Garden of Eden, man had faced a problem for which there was no remedy. It was called the sin problem. Every man had it, every man battled it, every man fought it, and no man could overcome it. Death reigned because of sin, and men tried, and even good men, men, even the man who is described as being a man after God's own heart was afflicted by the sin problem. You see, there was only one solution. There could be only one answer. And that was a perfect man who would offer himself as the perfect sacrifice to atone for all the sins of all mankind. But there had never been a perfect man until this man. And when Mary brought forth her firstborn son, in just a few years he would grow up into a young man. He would live a sinless life. And as he went to the cross, even his enemies would say, I find in him no fault at all. He did no sin. He knew no sin. In him was no sin. And yet he became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. These were days of anticipation because although everything around them seemed dark, the answer was already on the way. Can I just say tonight that although as we look around us in our society, in our world, things may seem dark. You may be facing adversity in your life. You look around and you say we're overcome by apostasy. You may even be experiencing anxiety. But can I say get your eyes off of the adversity. Turn your eyes away from the apostasy. Don't look in the direction and feed upon your anxiety, but turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full at his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The answer is on the way. You know what Joseph and Mary had to do? They had to do two things. Number one, they had to wait. And number two, they had to trust. And as they waited and as they trusted God, God did everything else. I'm reminded of the first uh, report of a miracle son when the Lord uh, spoke to Abraham. And he said, I'm going to give you a son in Genesis chapter number 18, I believe it is. And when he gave that report, Sarah laughed when she heard that. And the Lord asked this question. He asked a great question. He said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, that question stood unanswered. That question was left hanging. As we go through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges, and really when we come to the New Testament, we have never received a clear answer to that question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? But now in Luke chapter number one, a report is being made to another person about the birth of a miracle son. 
And as the angel comes to Mary and begins to explain to her what's going to happen, she has questions. She says, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? The angel begins to explain to her, and then he gives the answer to God's great question, is anything too hard for the Lord? He said in chapter 1 and verse number 37 of Luke, for with God nothing shall be impossible. Can I say, I don't know what your need is tonight, but I know what the answer is. The answer is Jesus Christ. Let's turn our eyes upon him and allow him to help us in these days. Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.